Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Aaron Flynn. He's a partner in the law firm of Waller Lansden, which is Tennessee-based and has offices across the Southeast in Texas. We're going to be talking about estate planning and why, even though we're in weird times right now and the COVID-19 virus is causing all sorts of problems, there are actually some interesting advantages to doing your planning now. We're also going to be talking about different advantages related to the Tennessee jurisdiction. Welcome aboard, Aaron. Thank you, Fred, thank you for having me. So we're in interesting times. We've got a coronavirus, which has shut down a lot of businesses, or at least impaired them a lot. And a lot of people are stuck in their homes thinking about their situation and what's happening with their wealth. I've been talking to a lot of folks who have been really sort of interested in what kinds of opportunities there might be in terms of estate planning. What have you been seeing with your client base? I assume that low interest rates make for an interesting environment and lower valuations help as well. You're absolutely right. I mean, in addition to people being concerned about just having the fundamental documents in place, your wills, your healthcare power, a lot of clients now are taking an opportunity to look at their assets and start doing some more complex planning in light of both the interest rates being low and valuation. So for example, right now, the hurdle rate for GRACs is 0.8%. So you know, if you could get an asset that appreciates greater than that, you'd be able to shift some significant value over to beneficiaries. Same thing on businesses or real estate ventures. The valuations are hopefully as low as they're going to be. So you get a double benefit of not only being able to sell at a lower fair market value, but if you were to sell in exchange for promissory notes, your AFR and the minimum interest you'd have to charge is also at a almost historic low. I mean, I think the minimum rate you'd have to charge on a note that's nine years or longer is 1.15%. That's for May. So again, we're in an environment where a lot's going on, but there's an opportunity to really transfer a lot of value at what are really depressed values and low interest rates. You talked a little bit about some of the instruments that are being used. GRATS, which is a well-worn concept for those of us in the industry and different philanthropic trusts and so on. A lot of times, for those of us who are in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, there's a little bit of jurisdictional arbitrage that we can take advantage of. And Delaware and South Dakota and Nevada are usual suspects as part of that planning. However, Tennessee has really come on strong as being a preferred jurisdiction. Maybe go through a little bit about how Tennessee has been a little bit forward in terms of thinking about that part of the jurisprudence and how they can be attractive to people who are planning their wealth structures. Yeah, and I think it all comes back to a word I use a lot. It's been intentional. Back in the early 2000s, Tennessee, the bar got together and really said, hey, look, we have the opportunity to become a leading jurisdiction, 
not only in the Southeast, but also nationally. And one of the fundamentals was we have no state income tax. It's against our constitution, which right there, the Hippocratic oath of do no harm, you know, if you put a trust here, you're not going to incur income tax. So first thing off is do no harm. And then the law has continued to evolve and passage of the Tennessee Uniform Trust Code, which ties closely to the UTC. But again, there's some intentional and specific places where we deviate from that because we think it's best for grantors and beneficiaries. Then we piled on a investment services trust, which is our version of an asset protection trust, self-settled. And then the community property trust structure was next. Then we've really beefed up our directed trust statute to allow that to be a very profitable and preferable mechanism. And then lastly, we recently passed legislation last year to create basically a special purpose entity, a, a new, probably an LLC that can serve as a trust protector and exercise fiduciary power. So those were really kind of the high points. And then as a result of getting the proper tools in place, Tennessee has just flourished. Again, Nashville has up until recently with the downturn was really riding the crest of the wave of tourism in the industry. And a lot of people are coming here. We are within, I forget the statistic, but it's something like 80% of the population is within a six hour drive or two hour flight of here. So for people that are out of state that are looking to site us in a foreign jurisdiction, it's an easy get to. So that I think is really driven it. But again, it's really been the focus of the bar of getting laws and making sure that we modernize our UTC and provide as much flexibility to the grantors and the beneficiaries that we can. Really interesting. And it sounds like a lot of flexible features for people who need some nuance around their structures. Let's start a little bit with the direction trust component that you talked about. I'm used to dealing with New York trusts and people who are trying to flee the state because there isn't enough flexibility to not only manage the investment assets within the trust, but also the distribution components. Maybe talk a little bit about how Tennessee and in your practice, you think about that to help families have maximum flexibility in working with their trusts, both from an investment and a distribution perspective. Obviously, in the, in the background of this discussion, you, know, you have to pay close attention to the transfer taxes, so your estate gift and GST. So that can't be ignored. But what our directed trust structure allows us to do is similar to other states where you'd have a trustee who would basically be in charge of all normal fiduciary administration. And then you specifically identify certain functions that the trustee is excluded from controlling and you vest those powers in an advisor or a committee of advisors, something of that nature. And then that is where maybe the grantor or the grantor's family can retain a little bit more control or power over investments or distribution. So for business owners, where maybe there is some concern about viability of the business after the G1's death, this will allow us to have that ownership structure maybe divide up amongst several trusts, but the actual management of the entity 
the vote, who selects the board or the managers, that would be held by that director. So it'll provide some cohesion going forward. And then with your distribution, where maybe you've got a family that says, hey, look, we are not trustees. We don't want to do trust reporting and accountings and custody assets. We really want to partner with a corporate fiduciary who would do, you know, that is their bread and butter. And then serve really with respect to the discretionary distribution function. So we kind of let somebody else take the lead on all the trust administration stuff. But when it comes to exercising discretion to make distributions, that's held at a committee level or a trust protector level and it allows them to participate kind of in just the functions that they want to participate in. I was just going to say that I like to think of it on the investment side. You're able to retain the edge you had in building the wealth and in helping to drive the investments. And then on the distribution side, if there are qualitative issues that need to be taken advantage of or dealt with in making the distributions, that's the function of having family members on the committee or other folks independent of a trust company. But you can have the structure of a trust company in helping to make those decisions. Correct. And we actually have also found that by unburdening the family members with the administrative side of it presents an opportunity of education where maybe you have G1 that serves on a committee of the investment advisors with G3 or the adult generation G3. And that way everyone sits around and listens to investment portfolio reviews and kind of starts this educational process to build off the acumen or the operational acumen, if it's an operating company, of the creator, the wealth creator, and it's really a transfer of knowledge. And we've seen some people really maximize that where they're really starting to get the younger generation, if not involved, at least exposed and engaged, which I think for everyone, the more engaged you have at the beneficiary level, the more successful you're going to be. I tell people that it's not tax planning or investments that usually destroys the wealth. It's usually conflict or problems in between generations. So your point's well taken that if people can be involved earlier, you have a better chance of maintaining that wealth for a long period of time. I think that one of the interesting things that you hearkened on was the idea of the state income tax implications of some of this planning. Maybe take us through an analysis when a family is not in a low income tax or no income tax state, how they can think about using trusts from an income tax or state capital gains tax perspective. For your non-grantor trusts, so those trusts that are not going to be taxed to the owner or the creator of the trust, income tax plans become huge. And Tennessee, by law, again, we do not have a state income tax. So whether you are decided as a trustee or with non-resident beneficiaries, Tennessee is not going to impose a tax. And what that allows is a potential ability to avoid what I will call your home state tax. So you could transfer a trust that maybe has highly appreciated assets into it, transfer situs to Tennessee, or create it under Tennessee situs. As long as your administration occurs here, the home state, if those assets were sold and capital gains realized, home state shouldn't have jurisdiction to tax it. So you would be able to avoid that home state tax. You'd still pay at the federal level, 
but there'd be nothing at a state level because again, you know, boy, home state, Tennessee doesn't have an income tax. So you see this a lot in your incomplete non-grantor trust. Those are starting to become a lot more popular here because again, with our proximity, so many people, you'll see a lot of people kind of come over the state line, cite us a trust here, administer a trust here to avoid that state income tax. And Tennessee law is very favorable in getting CITUS and administration here for purposes of that nexus. And then you can kind of go beyond what you're asking. You know, you can kind of potentially use some of our other structures to allow the creator of the trust to maybe have some insight or some control over the trust that's here in Tennessee without exposing it to that home state. So sometimes you might be able to kind of stay involved at the trust administration level and still not expose it to the home state. And that gets to questions of nexus and how closely you're tied to the trust in many ways. One of the features you were talking about before was the concept of asset protection, self-settled trusts or trusts that are set up for the protection of the beneficiaries. Maybe go into that a little bit. Those have become very popular both from a personal standpoint, but also as a way to create creditor protection for beneficiaries and otherwise try to help shield the wealth from predators that are out there. So Tennessee is very unique in our creditor protection for beneficiaries. I'll start with there. Under our law, assuming it's a discretionary distribution interest, which is your normal sole absolute discretion for health, education, maintenance, and support. Our law statutorily says that that is not a property interest, that is an expectation, and that there is no creditor right. So creditor can't attach to it, whether it's a spendthrift trust or not. By statute, we preclude a beneficiary's creditors from coming in there. And then on the self-settled aspect where I would create a trust that would be either for just my benefit or the benefit of me and some other beneficiaries, Tennessee has an asset protection trust, and it allows you to transfer assets into the trust while retaining a beneficial interest. And those assets, depending over a certain time period, become completely exempt from the claims of your creditors, so the creator's creditors. In general, provided the transfer in isn't a fraudulent transfer, there is basically a six-month waiting period. So after six months, those assets are free of creditors' claims. And that is a very helpful tool here. You don't have to be a Tennessee resident to take advantage of that. There is a requirement that you have a Tennessee CITUS trustee, so either an individual who's a resident or a corporate fiduciary who's here. And it allows you to, again, put that family nest egg or some sort of rainy day fund in a trust, knowing that, hey, look, if for some reason I should ever get sued or there's a creditor or anything out there, I've got these funds to the side that are exempt from my creditor's claims. Another oddly enough use of these, of an asset protection trust, we have found are they're basically a proxy for premarital agreements, where you might have wealthy parents who will have a child that's getting married and they mention prenup and that we all know where that kind of goes. 
Well, a, an asset protection trust would accomplish the same thing. So son or daughter would transfer everything into one of them. Once those assets are in there, assuming they're done pre-marriage, they are not subject to the claims of a spouse for either alimony. We do have an exception for child support. So if there's ever a child support award, they can come after the asset protection trust, but none on the alimony. So we find those asset protection trusts are starting to become a good stand-in for premarital agreement. I was going to say, that segues nicely to some of the community property features of Tennessee trust law. Could you go into those a little bit? So as people are aware, when you die, the assets that you own, you get what's referred to as a step-up in basis. So basically, anything I own individually, when I die, whoever inherits it, if they sell it the next day, the asset, there'd be no capital gain because the basis gets stepped up to fair market value at date of death. Community property has always had a very unique benefit, and that is for assets that are jointly owned by husbands and wives, rather than just the first to die. So let's say the husband, rather than just the husband's basis getting stepped up, the husbands and the wives both get their basis stepped up. So it's called a double step up in basis. Tennessee is not a community property state. However, in 2010, the legislature passed the Tennessee Community Property Trust Act, which had the specific intent of saying, if you create a Tennessee Community Property Trust, we are going to treat the assets held in that trust as community property for state law purposes. And that's important because under the federal estate tax and gift tax, it's been longstanding tradition that the IRS says state law defines the rights and the characterization of the property. Federal law just decides how it's taxed. So under our Community Property Trust Act, we by state law say this is community property. And what it is, is it is normally is a joint revocable trust where husband and wife, both are grantors, create it, or both co-trustees. And then you get into your normal testamentary planning of what happens upon the first death. They can be irrevocable. The focus on irrevocable trust is you need to make sure you're not making a taxable gift to the spouse that doesn't qualify for the marital induction gift tax purposes. So we've done a couple. The majority of them are revocable trusts. And to harken back to what we were talking a little bit about on grants, the IRS has not really come out and said whether they're going to respect community property trusts. But if they do, and you get a double step up in basis, well, that's great. That's exactly what we want. We've eliminated all that unrealized built-in gain. If no, and the IRS says, hey, look, we don't agree, you really haven't lost anything. It's not like you're penalized for having created a joint revocable trust. You'd still get that step up in the first to die, the basis of the first to die. You just wouldn't get it in the survivor. So you're like a grant that fails. You're no worse off than you were had you not done it. And in fact, you might be better because, you know, the benefits of using a revocable trust versus your normal will. So we're seeing a lot of that. Again, you don't have to be a Tennessee resident to take advantage of Tennessee Community Property Trust. But with the exemptions going as high as they are, we're starting to see a lot more focus on income tax planning post-mortem. 
And that's really where you see the Tennessee Community Property Trust. It could be a million, couple million dollar issue. It could be a $200,000 issue, but it's still beneficial to anyone that has unrealized appreciated gains. It's almost like having a call option on the IRS. If they decide to view it the way you want to, you benefit. And if you don't, you just let it expire and it's not a big deal. And there's some little tricks that practitioners have found. We've done these several times now, but a couple of them where one of the spouses has now passed away. And we were trying to figure out ways to affirmatively inform the IRS that we are taking the position that there's a double step up. So there's some ways that what the surviving spouse can do to disclose that information to the IRS with the argument that, hey, look, if I've told you in three years passes, you've accepted this under sort of a, a duty of consistency. It's definitely an interesting part of the law right now that, that makes Tennessee unique. And I think there's only a couple other states that have a Community Property Trust Act. For those who get involved with this, if a divorce happens after the fact, do you sort of include it in the trust via drafting to make sure that the spouse is either qualifying or not qualifying? How do you guard against that? What we typically do is we draft it in the sense that if I put it in, you know, if I put in assets that individually owned and we get divorced, that asset comes back. If we put in assets that are jointly owned, that asset gets divided in half and returned to everybody. We try to almost trace the source of the funds back to the contributor. Now, that's worked for the trust purposes. You still have a family court that could could award property in a divorce settlement that what was jointly might not be 50-50 going forward, but it comes out of the trust as 50-50. And then the other thing, any practitioner that does a lot of joint revocable trust will have encountered this. The other thing you need to be careful of is revocation. What you don't want is a silent revocation where maybe one spouse revokes or amends it and doesn't tell the other one until death. So pay close attention to basically the idea that, hey, look, if one of us is going to revoke or amend, you have to tell the other one. It's not required, but that's a little bit of malpractice insurance out there that, hey, look, my spouse did something with you. You knew it hurt my benefit or my interest. Why didn't you tell me? And this kind of puts the onus on the client. Got it. That's good advice. So a lot of times there are people who have structures that are already in place that they may have outgrown or the needs of the family have evolved and are different. And Tennessee, amongst other jurisdictions, has some real flexibility in helping people adjust their structures or otherwise make changes that can help the structure suit the needs of the families a little bit better now. And I'm thinking about decantings or non-judicial settlements, things like that. Maybe go through a little bit about what you have in your toolbox if you're dealing with Tennessee and you need to think about changes to trust structures. So we do provide flexibility. And one of the two, I guess, in the layers of complexity, or two that you mentioned were the non-judicial settlement agreement and the non-judicial modification agreement, which basically Tennessee is unique. We have our modification agreement can be done whether the grantor is alive or deceased. So there used to be a limitation. If the grantor was deceased, you'd have to go to court. We've gotten rid of that. So our 
modifications to really look at a trust, look at provisions that might have become outdated or need to be modernized and agree to modernize them without having to go to court. An ancillary, I guess, component of this is tenancy is a very broad virtual representation statute. So you might have a trust that's for the benefit of a child and grandchildren and the grandchildren are underage. Well, we have in virtual representation, you could have a parent of the grandchildren, whether that's the child or child spouse, represent and bind the beneficiaries. And our statute specifically says that for virtual representation, it's intended to be used to facilitate settlement and modification agreements. So it's clear in our statute. The other one is trust decanting. And as you mentioned, a lot of states allow this. Tennessee is a bit unique because it is not based on the identity of the trustee or the distribution standard. So some states will say, well, look, if the trustee is also a beneficiary, you've got different rules. Or if the dispositive provisions are your health education and maintenance standard versus an absolute discretion, we've got different rules. Tennessee is not. Tennessee says, hey, look, if you have a trustee, if they have the power to invade principle, they can exercise that power in favor of another trust. Now, you can't add beneficiaries, so you can't enlarge the class of beneficiaries in the new trust. You can eliminate beneficiaries, though, if you want to eliminate some. You can also grant powers of appointment to individuals that can be exercised in favor of individuals who are not beneficiaries. So while you can't enlarge the scope during life, you could give somebody a power testamentary to enlarge it. It doesn't require beneficiary consent. So it's something that a trustee can take unilateral action on. And we're starting to see that use where you might have had a trust that terminated at age 30. And people are saying now, well, hey, look, the beneficiary is not ready to get the cash at 30. So we could decant to a trust that maybe terminates at age 50. Or a lot of people say, well, look, had I known my child could be their own trustee at age 40, I wouldn't have terminated the trust. So we modify it to allow a child to be their own trustee. And then we decant to a trust that goes past 40. So there, it allows a lot of flexibility. And a lot of it is to react to things that have changed. And then some of it is just on second thought, a pot trust for four siblings wasn't the best idea. Let's split it up into one trust for each of them and their family. And it allows us to kind of accommodate those changes at the beneficiary level as well. So for people who have trusts that are situst in other states, and if there's language in that trust that allows the trustee to move situs to Tennessee, how would that work? functionally? Or how do you see that when people have trusts that have been cited elsewhere? How can they take advantage of Tennessee's law to be able to effectuate those types of decisions? The typical lawyer answer, I know, it depends. You'd have to look at the agreement. We've done this when we work with private trust companies. We've done a couple hundred of these. And it sometimes the trust agreement says trustee has the power to change sites in governing law. So that one's pretty easy. You just change it here, find a fiduciary here and change it to Tennessee. Some we would use home state law to enter into a non-judicial settlement agreement that allows us to change sites or change administrative law. 
So we've done them that way, where you kind of enter into agreement in the home state to change it to Tennessee. For those states where they don't have a non-judicial component, we have been able on more than one occasion to basically get a trust here so that our local judiciary has jurisdiction and venue, and then we can go to our Tennessee courts and affect a change to Tennessee law that is done based on the home state's law. So if you have state X and they have only judicial modification, well, we could move a trust to Tennessee, petition a court in Tennessee that says, hey, look, under state X's law, you as the judge have the ability to modify the agreement. We are asking you to modify it to Tennessee and have gotten court orders under that structure. So it kind of depends, but I have yet to be encountered with a situation where we were not able to get the trust moved. Interesting. I'm sure there are some out there, but it usually just that the tools at your disposal, you can kind of get it moved over to Tennessee. So you talked a little bit about the concept of a private trust company and for the families that are large enough and need the flexibility that a private trust company has setting one up, choice of jurisdiction is extremely important, whether it's depending on the regulatory capital required or the different regulatory requirements that a state has and other sorts of flexibility. And this is probably grist for a whole nother podcast in and of itself. But what makes Tennessee interesting from a private trust company jurisdiction perspective? It's two components. One is the benefits of Tennessee trust law. So that's going to be the fundamental. Without that, the next component's really irrelevant. So that gave us the platform. And then you're right, the next component is more of a regulatory issue. And what I think puts Tennessee at the forefront as far as citusing PTCs here is our regulator, the Tennessee Department of Financial Institutions, they are proactive. They see this as an opportunity to attract families to Tennessee, they work collaboratively with families who want to be here. And having spoken to other practitioners around the country, not all the states are like that. That sometimes it's much more of an adversarial role of regulator client, where here it's not. It's much more a collaborative effort to get things done. And our commissioner works with each PTC, who each applicant individually. So we don't have a standard capital contribution. If your family can go into the commissioner and say, hey, look, we think it should be this, and here's why, they're going to look at that on a subjective basis. And they're not going to say, well, hey, the last eight, they averaged capital contributions of whatever number. So this they really work with you on that. Two other unique aspects that kind of make Tennessee different is, and this kind of goes into how you structure PTC, but our LLC Act allows basically the members to give a non-member of the party the power to amend the operating agreement. So you can have a non-owner who's got sole absolute authority to amend the operating agreement. And that allows us to meet one of the situations that's identified in the IRS notice on PTCs because we can separate that amendment power from ownership. And then the other thing 
our legislature just recently came out and a PTC no longer has to be controlled directly by the family member. So again, that plays into that uniqueness of our LLC Act where we can kind of structure PTCs, the ownership of PTCs in unique ways. And where this might come into play, honestly, is where you have operating companies, where they want the operating company to own the PTC as opposed to setting up some parallel structure. That's helpful. And again, the other reason is, I think personally, our geographic location, we're a little bit easier to get to than Sioux Falls and other places. So I think that has an allure to it that other states don't. Nashville was the it city and hopefully will be after this is over. And a lot of people can get on a flight, either commercial or private, and be here in two hours and have the amenities of Nashville to kind of enjoy while they're here. You talked a little bit about the LLC Act and as it relates to private trust companies directly, the special purpose entity component of that for people who are organizing entities around regular directed trusts, if they use a corporate trust company in a more traditional sense, that seems to be an area where Tennessee is a little bit more forward than most. Maybe talk a little bit about how that developed. It's really unique. And what we found, which is, so again, back to the directed trust structure where you have a corporate fiduciary, and then you would exclude them from having certain powers and give it to a trust advisor. Well, Despite the powerfulness of that structure, we are finding clients were hesitant to use them, primarily because there are some liability concerns where you would appoint me as the advisor, and here I am, and what liability exposure do I have? Can I get a insurance to protect me? And that was very, I think, a barrier to people really utilizing this to its full power. So there's that concern of liability protection. And then people are saying, well, you could create an LLC and that would work. But Tennessee, like most states, would say, hey, look, if you are an LLC or any entity, you cannot exercise fiduciary powers unless you are authorized by state law. So I couldn't create Aaron's LLC and be a trustee because my LLC is not a authorized fiduciary. So what the SPE does is it allows you to create an LLC that will serve as the trust advisor. And you could put your individuals in there who are going to be the actual day-to-day advisors, but they would sit on a board or committee of the LLC. They would have liability protection because they're in the LLC. So you're back to your limit liability, business judgment rule concepts. But that LLC can also now, by state law, exercise fiduciary powers. So your power to direct distributions is held in fiduciary capacity. Your power to invest assets may or may not be held in fiduciary capacity. So the SBE allows people to kind of really ramp up the use of a trust protector. And where we see it is not only being beneficial, it's not only for business owners or large families, but maybe those families that aren't quite at the complexity or wealth that warrants a private trust company, they could 
kind of use an SPE to replicate a lot of that, where the custodial, the administrative is on the trustee. But here we have our own little entity that's going to run the business interests held by these trusts or the distributions that are going to be made from the trust. So it allows you to kind of fit in between PTC and just a normal individual or corporate fiduciary. And it helps you to consolidate jurisdiction, especially for people who live scattered across the country or the world. If you've got the SPE providing functions in their Tennessee and you've got a corporate fiduciary who's based in Tennessee as well, that bolsters your fact pattern if it gets complicated later. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That ability to centralize oversight, administration, management is beneficial. And you hit on one thing I didn't mention earlier is Tennessee by statute has basically said, we will not recognize foreign laws on our trucks. So one of the ones we've run into the most is forced airship. So people that live internationally in jurisdictions that have this forced airship rules, our statutes is, hey, look, if you get a judgment in foreign country for a forced airship and try to come to Tennessee to enforce it, we're not going to enforce it. We don't recognize that. So having those assets cited here and administer under Tennessee law can also provide some protection or avoid some risk of having different jurisdictions with different laws that purport to be imposed on the same pool of assets. As we start thinking about closing here, are you seeing a lot of foreign interest in using Tennessee as a way to provide a U.S. situs for wealth? I know with different sort of legal concepts like the CRS, that the in a backdoor way, the United States is becoming a banking haven. And Tennessee's trust laws seem to be flexible enough and interesting enough that foreign wealthy families might start to take a look at this a little more closely. You're right. And we have. We've had discussions with several foreigners, people in situs or residents in countries outside the U.S., about situsing trusts here. Some already have U.S. source assets. So it's really a matter of, to your point, kind of concentrating those all in one jurisdiction. Some have no U.S. situs assets, and they are looking to really transfer things here. I think there's a learning curve, for lack of a better term, between people that have almost reflexes to Cook's Islands or BVI or someplace like that as the dominant offshore jurisdiction. And I think that slowly that will change. I don't practice on that offshore domestic or offshore asset protection trust or kind of how those are set up. But I just do know in our conversations with foreigners that a lot of times those come up. It sounds like there is an internal pros cons debate that they're having with their other advisors as for what structure is the best going forward for them. Right. Aaron, thank you very much. Stay safe down in Tennessee and make sure to stay healthy as we go forward here. Uh, thank you for being on. Yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity to talk and yeah, I hope everyone stays safe and healthy and this gets over sooner rather than later. And for everyone listening, I'll have Aaron's contact information in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.